Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 112. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on April 13th, 2023 in Austin, Texas, a little bit after eight in the evening. It's a rare evening recording of this podcast. Maybe you'll decide it sounds a little better, different, or worse. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. As has happened many times before, moral support for the writing of this episode, by which I mean tolerating my presence for hours on end, was provided by the Cuban Creation Cigar Bar on Toulouse Street in New Orleans. Okay, so a couple of items to report. One is that the first ever group meetup of fans of the podcast in Washington, D.C. on April 11th came off swimmingly. We had about a dozen fans from the region come by a craft brewery, and I ended up chatting with people from about 4.45 when the first showed up to 8.30. Great fun for me anyway, and I hope also for the people who made the trip. Thank you very much. The other thing is that this episode is coming a bit later than I'd planned. I'd written almost all of it over last weekend. But on April 12th, yesterday, the day after the meetup, I drove down to St. Mary's City, the first place in Maryland officially settled, and for some decades, the capital of the Maryland colony. Well, there I ended up chatting with one of the docents at the site, a fellow named Jeremy, who's charged with maintaining the museum's replica of the Dove, one of the two ships that made the journey across the Atlantic with that first batch of Lord Baltimore's settlers. Jeremy straightened me out on a number of important Maryland historical factoids, so I've had to do a certain amount of rewriting to get this episode in shape for recording. Thank you, Jeremy. At the great risk of oversimplifying, the colonization of Maryland in the 1630s and 40s is a series of sort of parallel stories. There is, of course, all the usual factual stuff about the original motivations for the settlement, the obtaining of a charter, the journey across the ocean, the locating of a settlement, the struggles of the first year, relations with the local Indians, and all of that. Nearly as I can tell, that stuff was covered comprehensively in a book published 90 years ago by Matthew Page Andrews, The Founding of Maryland. It is out of print, but I've managed to buy one from an independent bookseller in the UK via Amazon. Unfortunately, it will take a while for The Founding of Maryland to get to Texas, and then I will have to read it. Since Maryland came into its own, as it were, while Roger Williams was creating a stir in Massachusetts Bay and Jean Nicolet was traveling to Green Bay, it's time to come back to Chesapeake Bay. Fortunately, there's another way to get to Maryland, and that's through the tale of the fairly ridiculous intercolonial war that broke out between the first English Marylanders and a bunch of Virginians. So my plan is to tell you about that kerfuffle in this episode and then circle back in the near future to the political and religious aspects of the settlement with all my usual detail. All of that said, we'll need to touch on the basics of the first settlement to make the aforementioned war understandable. I trust you got all of that. I don't know how much Marylanders other than Jeremy know about the early colonization of their own state's territory. 
but I do know that most Americans know very little about it. Hundreds, if not thousands of books have been written about Jamestown and colonial Virginia. No doubt the same is true of for Plymouth and the Massachusetts Bay Colony. That's great for history podcasters. Maryland, however, has no such easily accessible modern histories, which is why I've ordered a 90-year-old book. Fortunately, George Bancroft wrote a 24-page chapter on the first settlement of Maryland in Volume 1 of the History of the United States of America, the most recent edition of which dates to 1878. So I relied on that for the background bit. The founding of Maryland was contentious because its territory, whether by colonial or modern standards, falls within the original mandate of the Virginia Company. Long-standing and super-attentive listeners may recall that the patent from James I in 1606 conferred the right to settle along the Atlantic coast between 34 and 40 degrees, or from roughly Wilmington, North Carolina to Seaside Heights, New Jersey. The Crown revoked the Virginia Company's charter in 1624 after the catastrophe of Opakankanaw's War, and thereafter it was a crown colony with a royal governor. On the one hand, that changed the legal rights of the colonists, as they would eventually find out. On the other, it seemed like a mere governance change, because in the revocation of the charter and the establishment of the crown colony, James wasn't very clear about the borders changing. From the standpoint of the Virginia settlers, they had been exploring the Chesapeake since the days of John Smith, trading with the tribes there and relying upon it as a source of food, furs for export, and Indian allies. The Virginians had already made various moves to the eastern shore of the Chesapeake, and in the late 1620s, William Claiborne, with the backing of the colony's leadership, sought and obtained a monopolistic license to trade in the Chesapeake. Claiborne would turn out to be an interesting fellow of both great accomplishment and a profoundly stubborn disposition, perhaps to the point of being a nickname for Richard, family podcast, etc., etc. Claiborne had originally come to Virginia in 1621 as a surveyor. His fortunes rose rapidly, and not only because he survived the very long odds against living much past his first year in the New World. In 1625, he was appointed Secretary of State of the colony and given a seat on its governing council. According to Professor Manfred Jonas, in 1627, Sir George Yardley, then governor, commissioned Claiborne to lead an expedition to discover the bottom of the Chesapeake, meaning the northern reaches at the mouth of the Susquehannock. Those of you who listened to the episode on John Nicolet will recall that the French interpreter Etienne Brule had reached that area by paddling down the Susquehannock in 1615. But there's no reason that the English in Virginia should have known that, or if they did, would have cared. Anyway, in one of Claiborne's voyages, probably in 1628, he reached the island John Smith in 1608 had named Winston's Island and which today is known by the name Claiborne substituted, Kent Island. Kent Island's just east of Annapolis, and only 20 miles southeast of today's Baltimore as the ordinary crow flies. I learned this literally 
hours after I declared with great confidence that I'd found no evidence that any European had reached Baltimore by 1634 in that last episode on Nicolay. I hadn't realized that either Smith or Claiborne had gotten that far north, a slip-up in research and judgment that fills me with remorse. Oh, well, that's not my first sloppy error, nor will it be my last. At the same time, a Catholic peer, George Calvert, the first Baron Baltimore, was knocking around the region. Calvert had been granted a crown fief. Not fiefdom, by the way. I'm the son of a medievalist. This was important in the family discussions. In southeastern Newfoundland in 1622, had named it Avalon for its Arthurian connotations and had attempted a settlement there. As anyone would, he soon tired of the winners. Calvert petitioned the popish Charles I, perhaps that's unfair, for land in the warmer, if more diseased, shores of Virginia, and sailed for Jamestown in early 1629. Now let's go to Professor Jonas from his paper, The Claiborne-Calvert Controversy, quote, Calvert's reception there was as chilly as the climate of the country he had just left. The Virginians, realizing that Lord Baltimore was seeking the grant of a portion of their land, and wary in any case of papists, made his stay both uncomfortable and short by tendering him the oaths of allegiance and supremacy, signifying acceptance of the English Reformation. Among the men sent by the Council of Virginia to administer the oaths to Calvert was William Claiborne, the man who for nearly half a century thereafter was to be the chief antagonist of the Lord's Baltimore in America. Back to me. In an age when taking an oath was making a promise to God, and, as we have seen, most people would not swear to things they would not undertake for fear of eternal damnation. Calvert saw no option other than to return to England, but he was not through with the Chesapeake by any means. Not long after chasing Calvert out of Virginia, William Claiborne sailed for England himself. There he cut a deal with a group of London merchants known as Cloberry and Co., who charged him to set up a settlement for trading for fur on Kent Island. Since he was playing with other people's money, he made it all legal by appealing to Sir William Alexander, then the English Secretary of State for Scotland, for a license. On May 16, 1631, Cloberry and Co. received an exclusive license to, quote, trade and traffic in furs or any other commodities whatsoever, with their ships, men, boats, and merchandise in all seas, coasts, rivers, creeks, harbors, lands, and territories in, near, or about those parts of America for which there is not already a patent granted to others for sole trade. Clover & Co. provided Claiborne with a ship, the Africa, a master, and some 20 indentured servants and perhaps 80 prospective settlers with a charge of sailing to the Chesapeake. Claiborne was to purchase Kent Island from the relevant Indians, which he did, and on August 17, 1631, he established something like a settlement there. 
Late as it was, the settlers began clearing fields and planting, and before the end of the year had dispatched their own representative to the Virginia Assembly. Kent Island was, by all appearances, a new town of the Virginia colony. Unless one chats with Jeremy, as I have done. Even today, the Marylanders who know their local history, and Jeremy manifestly is one, argue that Claiborne didn't plant and therefore didn't settle. For my own part, notwithstanding my own Virginia roots, I'm going to sit this one out. Call it audience capture if you will, but we have listeners in both of those great states, and I see no reason to take a side on the Kent Island question. Now, the legalities here were, in fact, ambiguous and would be central to the intercolonial dispute over which naval battles would be fought and blood would be spilled. Claiborne had title from the Indians for Kent Island and had both occupied it and, according to pro-Claiborne accounts, cultivated it. But he had no specific authority from the crown to settle there permanently. His was a license to trade, not royal permission to plant. Claiborne was, in modern terms, establishing facts on the ground rather than a right in law. Lord Baltimore, meanwhile, was back in England, extolling Virginia to King Charles and anybody else who would listen. Now, to George Bancroft's account, written no later than 1878, quote, It was represented that on the north of the Potomac there lay a country occupied only by scattered hordes of native tribes. The French, the Dutch, and the Swedes were preparing to occupy it, and a grant seemed the readiest mode of securing it by English settlement. The canceling of the Virginia patents in 1624 had restored to the monarch his prerogative over the soil. And it was not difficult for Calvert, a man of such moderation that all parties were taken with him, sincere in his character, disengaged from all interests, and a favorite with the royal family to obtain a charter for uncultivated domains in that happy clime. The conditions of the grant conformed to the wishes, it may be to the suggestions, of the first Lord Baltimore himself, although it was finally issued for the benefit of his son. The ocean, the 40th parallel of latitude, the meridian of the western fountain of the Potomac, the river itself from its source to its mouth, and a line drawn due east from Watkins Point to the Atlantic, these were the limits of the territory, which was now erected into a province, and by the king's command from Henrietta Maria, the daughter of Henry IV and wife of Charles I, whose restless mind, disdaining contentment in domestic happiness, aspired to every kind of power and distinction, took the name of Maryland. The country thus described was given to Lord Baltimore, his heirs and assigns, as to its absolute lord and proprietary, to be holden by the tenure of fealty only, paying a yearly rent of two Indian arrows and a fifth of all gold and silver ore which might be found. Back to me. Okay, first... I dare any of you married dudes to suggest to your wives that they refrain from disdaining contentment in domestic happiness. Please report back. 
More importantly, Maryland, established in part as a bulwark against France, is named for the daughter of France's great King Henry IV, he who had been Samuel de Champlain's greatest benefactor, and quite possibly his father, in which case Champlain would be Henrietta Maria's illegitimate half-brother. Life's little ironies indeed. And the rent? Nobody ever found gold or silver in Maryland, but the colony dutifully shipped off those two Indian arrows every year for decades to come. George Calvert died before he could secure the final seal on the patent, so it was ultimately issued in the name of his son, Cecil Calvert, the second Baron Baltimore. Cecil Calvert's first title would be, in all its glory, First Lord Proprietary Earl Palatine of the provinces of Maryland and Avalon in America, which even today would get you invited to the best parties. Finally, we'll get into the meaning of the term proprietary colony when we come back to Maryland in the near future. The Virginians, suffice it to say, were horribly vexed by all of this. They protested the Baltimore patent to the Privy Council to no avail, although that august body punted on the question of title to Kent Island and advised the parties to an amicable adjustment of all disputes and commanded a free commerce and a good correspondence between the respective colonies. The Privy Council, it would turn out, had a quaint view of the people with whom they were dealing. Cecil Calvert, having other business and perhaps disinclined to put his life on the line in the Chesapeake, appointed the work of settlement to his brothers with Leonard Calvert in command. The ships were the Ark, a good ship of 300 or 400 tons, Jeremy says the sources conflict and 400 tons is the better estimate. And the dove, a pinnace of 40 to 50 tons. And this time, Jeremy says, around 40 tons is the best answer. Jeremy would know because he supervised the construction of a replica of the dove and gave me an hour of his time talking about it. If you get to St. Mary's City and go see the dove, please tell Jeremy I sent you. Anywho, the Ark and the Dove sailed from the Isle of Wight in late November 1633 with about 20 gentlemen, two to three hundred laboring men, and a couple of Jesuit priests who wrote stuff down for Virginia. Virtually everybody was on the Ark. The Dove had a crew of only seven, plus a boy of eight, who no doubt made himself useful, but per Jeremy, did not count as a crewman. It being winter, they sailed the southern route to the leeward islands of the Caribbean and then to Virginia. The two ships were separated, but reconnected at Barbados, where they spent a couple of weeks gathering supplies, paying too much for overpriced livestock, and drinking rum. Thusly refreshed, they set sail for Virginia and arrived at Port Comfort at the mouth of the James in late February, almost three months after departing England. They were greeted there by Governor Harvey with, according to Bancroft, courtesy and humanity, per the direction of King Charles, who had sent along instructions to that effect. The Virginians even provided the future Marylanders with cattle, hogs, poultry, and rootstock for pears, peaches, and apples. None of this meant that the Virginians wanted to surrender any settlement that they'd already established to the Calverts. 
Having some advance notice of the arrival of the Ark and the Dove, Claiborne had asked the Council of Virginia, of which he was a member, whether he should relinquish his claim to Kent Island. The Council, in its due consideration, told him that they knew no reason why they should render up the right of that place of the Isle of Kent more than any other formally given to the colony by His Majesty's patent. In Manfred Jonas's words, Claiborne thereupon refused to meet with Calvert. He thus set out on a course which pride and stubbornness caused him to maintain in the face of mounting adversity until the day he died. In my experience, stubbornness is only a compliment if it ultimately pays off. Suffice it to say that Claiborne refused Calvert's demand that his settlement at Kent Island now report to the Lord Proprietary of the Province of Maryland. George Bancroft's 150-year-old description of the first settlement of Maryland works just fine for our purposes, quote, After a week's kind entertainment, the adventurers bent their course to the north and entered the Potomac, a larger or more beautiful river writes Father White, I have never seen. The Thames compared with it can scarce be considered a rivulet. No undergrowth chokes the beautiful groves on each side of its solid banks so that you might drive a four-horse chariot among the trees. Briefly, back to me. George Bancroft seems to have taken Father White's description of the forest along the river at face value but long-standing and attentive listeners will recognize the effects of Indian management of the forest by controlled burns. Back to Bancroft, quote, Under an island, which can now hardly be recognized with certainty, actually, it was St. Clement's Island now easily recognized with certainty on Google Earth, the Ark came to an anchor, while Calvert with a dove and another pinnace there's a debate over this too, but too much for this episode, ascended the stream. At about 47 leagues above the mouth of the river, he came upon the village of Piscataqua, an Indian settlement nearly opposite Mount Vernon, where he found an Englishman who had lived many years upon the Indians as a trader and spoke their language well. Briefly back to me. I think by now you know that I love these early Europeans who lived in vast early America getting along with the locals. Bancroft does not say who this particular guy was, but the ever-resourceful Jeremy told me his name was Henry Steele, an independent fur trader who had embedded with the tribes on the Chesapeake. Back to Bancroft. With him, meaning Steele, for an interpreter, a parley was held with them. To the request for leave for the newcomers to sit down in his country, the chieftain of the tribe would neither bid them go nor stay. They might use their own discretion. It did not seem safe to plant so far in the interior. Taking with him the trader, Calvert went down the river, examining the creeks and estuaries near the Chesapeake. He entered the branch, which is now called St. Mary's, and about four leagues from its junction with the Potomac, he anchored at the Indian town of Yokomoko. The native inhabitants, having 
suffered from the superior power of the Susquehannocks, who occupied the district between that river and the Delaware Bay, had already resolved to remove into places of more security, and many of them had already begun to migrate. It was easy, by presence of cloth and axes, of hoes and knives, to gain their goodwill and to purchase their rights to the soil which they were preparing to abandon. With mutual promises of friendship and peace, they readily gave consent that the English should immediately occupy one half of their town, and after the harvest, the other. Back to me. There you have it. The first real settlement in today's Maryland, not counting Kent Island, in March 1634. March, it would turn out, was an excellent time of year to arrive. The settlers would get crops in the ground that first year, and there would be no dying time in Maryland, as there had been in Virginia for years and in Massachusetts for both the Pilgrims and the Winthrop Fleet, both of whom arrived too late in the year to plant. At some point in 1634, Cecil Calvert, the second Baron Baltimore and the Lord Proprietary of Maryland, directed his brother Leonard to seize Kent Island and arrest Claiborne, notwithstanding the admonition of the Privy Council to work things out politely and in accordance with law. Cloberry and co. got wind of Baltimore's order, whereupon they petitioned the king for protection of their property and people on Kent Island. On October 8, 1634, just as Jean Nicolet was traveling back to Huronia from Wisconsin, Charles I issued a letter that appeared to side with William Claiborne and his investors. Now let's go to a paper titled William Claiborne of Kent Island, published in the William and Mary Quarterly, April 1921, by one J. Herbert Claiborne, almost 300 years later still irritated by the treatment of his ancestor at the hands of the Calverts. Quote, the royal letter says in part that Baltimore's interference with the planters on Kent Island is contrary to justice and to the true intention of our grant to said Lord. We do therefore hereby declare our expressed pleasure to be that said planters be in no sort interrupted in their trade or plantations by him or any other in his right. And we prohibit as well the Lord Baltimore as all other pretenders under him or likewise to plantations in those parts to do them any violence or to disturb or hinder them in their honest proceedings and trade there. Kindly note the word pretenders and the strength and peremptory command contained in these words. They are clear beyond peradventure. And as at that time the king's word was law, it could not be gainsaid or ignored. Back to me. William Claiborne, believing the king had spoken clearly, and still backed by Virginia, continued to trade in the Chesapeake from his base on Kent Island. According to Timothy Riordan, author of The Plundering Time, Maryland and the English Civil War, 1645-46, Early in 1635, Claiborne's men seized a ship from St. Mary's that had been trading in the upper reaches of the bay and sent its crew home on foot. Supposedly, this happened at Palmer's Island, now Garrett Island, which is all the 
way up at the mouth of the Susquehannock River, 99 miles as the super crow would fly to St. Mary's City, and well over 100 miles on foot. Retaliation was swift. On April 5th, 1635, two of the Calvert ships sailing out of St. Mary's City seized a pinnace that belonged to Claiborne, the Longtail. The captain of the Longtail, one Thomas Smith, showed the Marylanders copies of the king's commission to trade in his subsequent letter. But Calvert's captains declared them fraudulent and kept the Longtail and its goods. Not surprisingly, William Claiborne began arming his ships. At some point, not long after the Longtail seizure, Claiborne sent the armed sloop Cockatrice under the command of one Ratcliffe Warren to make reprisals against Maryland vessels. Calvert was prepared and sent two ships, the St. Helen and the St. Margaret, to confront the Cockatrice. They saw the whites of their eyes on April 23, 1625. There was shooting. One Marylander was killed, as were Captain Warren and two of his men. The cockatrice surrendered. Leonard Calvert was now two and one against William Claiborne. On May 10, 1635, yet another of Claiborne's ships, again under the command of Thomas Smith, defeated the Marylanders at the mouth of the Potomac. There doesn't seem to be much more information than that, unfortunately, so we don't know whether anyone died or any ships went down. There's no record, however, that there was any more fighting between the Virginians and the Marylanders for something like two years. If the conflict in the Chesapeake had led to big profits for Cloberry and Co., all would have been well. But shooting rarely leads to more trade, or as William Claiborne's descendant, J. Herbert Claiborne, wrote just three years after World War I, fighting and business are incompatible unless... Business and fighting are one. True enough, Cloberry and Co. decided it needed more management on the scene, and in December 1636, they sent over one George Evelyn to take over. Evelyn initially positioned himself as a supporter of Claiborne, and he delighted in bad-mouthing the Calvert, saying that Leonard was a blockhead and a fool at school. But some of this must have been to keep Claiborne and the settlers unsuspecting, because in February 1637, the company sent over a cargo of goods and servants from England, and they were consigned to Evelyn and not Claiborne. The directors of Cloberry & Co. also sent Evelyn their power of attorney and instructions to Claiborne to turn over all goods to Evelyn and to come to England with a full financial accounting of his management of the trade. After some Back and forth, and most likely, bad words. Claiborne departed for England in May 1637. George Evelyn had a problem, however. The Kent Island settlers, who had, at least according to Virginians, cleared fields and built houses and made a successful life of themselves, did not like him and would not do what he said. Evelyn returned like with like, and then turned to the blockhead Leonard, not that he was in fact a blockhead, to help him take the place over. On February 25th, 1638, Calvert loaded 30 musketeers. That's 10 times the number usually required, as I always understood it as a kid, and took over Kent Island. Calvert made George Evelyn commander of Kent Island. 
garrisoned it against, presumably an internal uprising, or perhaps angry Virginians. Later, Calvert bestowed upon Evelyn the title of Lord of the Manor of Evelynton, which kind of cracks me up. Maybe I'll sign my correspondence, Lord of the Manor of Hennemanburg, although I suppose my wife would find that funny no more than once at most. Claiborne, back in England, got wind of all of this soon enough, and by July of the same year had secured a letter from Charles commanding Baltimore to allow Claiborne, his agents or partners, full possession of Kent Island, at least pending a ruling by his own commission on plantations, which purported to govern such matters from across the Atlantic. Unfortunately, this was not soon enough to save Claiborne's sturdy captain, Thomas Smith. In March, the Maryland Assembly had passed a Bill of Attainder, a legislative indictment outlawed under the United States Constitution from its first ratification against Smith and sentenced him to be hung, which he directly was. In the same session as the indictment, conviction, and execution of Captain Smith, the Maryland Assembly indicted William Claiborne in absentia, declaring him guilty of piracy and murder. They confiscated Kent Island as a matter of law. Maryland had already occupied it and had never relinquished its claim, so this seems like a belt and suspenders double confiscation. In this, they were in fact ultimately backed by England's Commission on Plantations. Any practical man might have, at this point, thrown in the towel. Kent Island wasn't inherently all that valuable. But Claiborne was not a practical man. One imagines him with all the righteous indignation of Bugs Bunny rising up to say that, of course, you realize this means war. Claiborne brought lawsuits in Virginia and Maryland, both of which would fail, and went to work on a military solution. That, however, would not come to pass for another seven years. And it would be the catalyst for the famous plundering time, which deserves its own episode because it's very bound up in the broader civil development of Maryland in the context of the English Civil War. Therefore, this is actually a great place to stop right now. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And you can buy the books I mentioned through the links and the episode notes on the website, and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly history-related topics. Until next time.